Welcome to the Ed Essentials Podcast. This is Hunter Flesh, and my mission is to give teachers and leaders strategies that work. Connect with me on social media by following Ed Essentials or leave the show a review. Thank you so much for tuning in. Now let's get started. Hey there, everyone. This is episode 66 of the Ed Essentials podcast. And before we dive into today's interview, I have a favor to ask. You know that I give my heart and soul to the people of the Ed Essentials community, people I've connected with on social media, educators in this circle that have really helped transform me into the educator I am. You know I give my all to you guys. And I have one favor to ask if you really want to do something nice, if you want to return that favor and connect someone else that you believe needs this show, rate this show and give it a review. That is the absolute best thing you can do to help grow the show, to connect other educators to it, and to share the message that's coming from the Ed Essentials podcast that would mean the world to me. Okay, so today's episode is all about how to have hard conversations. That is something in education that, frankly, we are not very good at. Nor do we get the training or practice or mentorship on how to not only accept feedback and criticism, but how to give it in the right way. And so I sought out an expert on this. She is the author of Stretching Your Learning Edges, as well as Having Hard Conversations and a variety of other books. Her name is Jennifer Abrams, and she is absolutely fantastic. Her and I dive into this idea of how we can get better at having hard conversations, what causes people to not be very good at them in the first place, and then how we can ultimately improve um, our system through the use of these hard conversations. So without further ado, please welcome to the Ed Essentials podcast, Jennifer Abrams. So I'm coming to you from Palo Alto, California, um, the land of the Ohlone people, um, where I have been for over 35 years. My background is that I was a high school English teacher here in Palo Alto Unified School District. And um, for me, and I don't speak ill of English teachers. I think they're amazing. And I was an English teacher for a decade. I just, I was like, you know, Macbeth dies a lot every hour. And I can't do that right now. I can't do that after a decade. So I went into new teacher coaching, which just catapulted me into an entire conversation, which, which leads to the hard conversations piece, which is I have a credential in how to teach students the subject of English, and I don't have a credential on how to talk effectively to other adults. And that led me to learning about coaching, learning about facilitation, learning about adult learning. And one of the pieces I noticed in education in particular is that we have a really challenging time having... Um, hard conversations with each other about things that matter and how do we do it well. And so that's where it led me uh, in my work as a new teacher coach and professional development facilitator, which I did for 16 years in-house, to a number of books about adult-to-adult communication. I've written five so far, and one of those is having hard conversations. So wow. that's that's the story. 
I'm fascinated to know when that moment was for you. And obviously you, you've had a, a long career. And so when you were still in the English classroom, what was that moment? Was it that moment where Macbeth dies for the hundredth time and you're like, yep, I need something new. Or, or no. was there a hard conversation that you had that all of a sudden you realized I, I, I need to know more about this? You know, what's interesting. And I'm going to be really honest and candid about this. Um, a couple things happen. And it's so funny that you bring this up because I'm writing about this idea of the gas tank was just on empty. I had worked very um, intensely with uh, a number of women in a women writers class that have had a, just incredible mental health issues. There had been people who had shared with me that they wanted to end their lives. I was working with counselors. I was really depleted because of that. Um, and I was also physically getting depleted. I, I ended up breaking up with a boyfriend. I did, it was my early 30s. I just didn't know if I should get married. And I just chose not to get married. And I was depleted in too many places and the work wasn't really fulfilling. And I say this to people because I'm writing about this in my newsletter again. When your tank is on empty, I really worry you've tipped the seesaw too far. And it 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 exacerbated to the point that I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And stress really exacerbates that. And it had been in my family and I ultimately needed to make decisions for my health. How could I stay in the field and stay healthy? And it led to a coaching position, which by the grace of God actually had been available to me at that moment. And so that's, that's when I left. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, you know, it was a, just a factors all kind of came up. But um, I'm still friends with that gentleman that I chose not to marry. I'm physically well. All the people that brought me into coaching, all the women, and I thank all of them all the time. They've retired, but I still shout shout out to to Ruth and Elaine and Becky. You know, they were amazing, and um, and I'm in the field as a result. So it it all it all worked. But it was a it was a don't let your tank get that empty and still try to drive. Oh my, yeah, it's because that's not going to work, right? You bring up such a, a, an important point. There are so many educators who are sort of trying to drive on this empty tank right now. Um, and I, I don't think our jobs, there are so many things that put a stress on our lives and on our jobs. Um, and I know we're going to talk about hard conversations and yeah. sometimes that can be a big source of that stress. But we have so many educators who are not finding the fulfillment in their day-to-day -day job that you're right, it's kind of just, you're burning all this fuel with no actual refuel. There's no opportunity to stop. You just have to keep driving until the end and then you hit summer, yeah. but then nothing ever really changes systemically. So then we end up with all these educators feeling tired, depleted, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's its own conversation with the teacher shortage. It's, mm -hmm. it's a deeper conversation that I, I don't even, I have no right answers for that, mm -hmm. that teacher education systems, districts and boards and organizations all over the U.S. and North America need to really take a look at what we can do when I think of burnout and quiet quitting and mm -hmm. and just there's just a lot to that. And and some of it might have to do with how we are not communicating effectively with each other. That could be a small piece of it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's what I'm Absolutely. And 
I'm really curious about this question. So people, and, and this is just in my short time in education, this is my fourth year as an educator, yeah. but I found that people often are really good at knowing they need to have a hard conversation, yes. but they never follow through or something gets in the way or whatever the reason is, people don't follow through at having those hard conversations. So I'm here to ask Jennifer, why is that? Why are we so bad at having hard conversations with people who are professionals, who we feel like we should, of all the people in the world, we should be most comfortable talking to them about professional things? Oh gosh, we, um, there are so many reasons. And when I wrote the book and I think I wrote it in 2009 and I wrote another book about it in 2013, um, I think that we as a field um, have a have a strong need to stay in rapport with people. And we think if I have a hard conversation, nobody'll ever like me again. And it's too, it's too hard to, it's a too, too big of a mountain to to climb to say I can be respected and have a hard conversation. I will be liked again and have a hard conversation. I think people just can't see that. Um, they worry about um, they worry about so many things. What is what will they do if they yell at me? Will there be retribution? Um, I will never be invited to happy hour again. There's just there's so many um, and and understandable concerns. And Bob Bob Keegan from Harvard and his co-writer Lisa Lasko Leahy would call those competing commitments. We really feel we can do this as a professional. We know we need to grow up as an adult and be able to talk about things that matter. And we're committed to it, but we're also committed to feeling certain ways. And that just really, uh, we stop instead of experimenting because the risk is too great. What if I risk here and they really do something to me? And I've never... People are always worried. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. And I said, are they going to key your car? Are they going to puncture your tires? Because that's actually happened to two people I know um, where, you know, physical retribution has happened. Two. And I wrote this in 2009. It is 2022, right? We're not talking. And I've talked to people all over the world, thousands of people. It's very rare that something is going to happen. But Let's look at our, let's look at the globe right now. Let's look at conflict. You know, it doesn't, it's not, we need, instead of just being able to have a hard conversation, we need to be able to build our bandwidth to be receivers of things that might mm -hmm. be uncomfortable. And we need to build our bandwidth to offer in a humane and growth producing way, feedback, cultures of feedback, cultures of learning. That's a whole other thing. So hard conversations need to come within um, a culture of, we might hear some things we don't love. How do you respond to that? We might, and to be able to bounce back too. So there's lots to a hard conversation, not just giving it, but receiving them as well. Yeah. I was literally having a conversation with a teacher today and she was worried about how to approach a coworker because there was an issue between him and a student, a big misunderstanding, and he may not be providing all the right accommodations. And so I was talking her through this and I said, well, what are the barriers? Is it really something that you feel like he's going to be like giving retribution for? Right. No, not really. Like yeah. if, if you go through, through the perspective of, Hey, it's all about the student. It's about their needs. And I'm here to offer 
advice and coaching. And I would love to come in and help and see how this could work. And if you go through that lens, oh my gosh, that's so much less scary. Right. But still, we we come up with these, well, what if, you know, the right. what, if what if is like the big killer. It uh, is. It's a it's too much of a big killer and and if we learn what we wanted to say in a humane and growth producing way, and we knew that what we were saying isn't most likely going to receive the what if you fear. And if we worked with people to suspend their certainty, to be able to receive feedback so a what if doesn't come out of their mouths, is their immediate thing we might be able to meet in the middle more often with some information that might really be useful to 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 the work we do and ultimately to the students that we serve. Yeah. Do you feel there is a lot of ego attached to this where like I don't want to hurt their ego or or when yeah. people receive that feedback, oh that means I'm a terrible teacher and this goes for any feedback Take right. observations, evaluations, any any side conversation. You bring up someone as a teacher and what's going on in their classroom, and it's oh my god, what are you doing? I'm I'm a terrible person. You're saying right. I'm terrible at my job. No, 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 no. That's not what that's we're saying no, at all. Right, and I think that that's huge. I think that um, we are very connected to our work in ways that many many other professions do not apprentice somebody into mm. doing into feeling right if you're an if you're a um an attorney you have to go and do law like do court and practice being constantly you know objection that that somebody's always kind of pushing up against you if you're in um if you're in uh, being a doctor, you're going to go to things. You're going to see rounds. People are going to provide lots of different pieces of feedback. You go in, if you're a therapist, you go into um, conference or consult with people. It's part and parcel of what you do every week. We don't have reflection periods. We don't deprivatize our practice very often. Mm. So when people give you feedback, we are unaccustomed to doing it to with ourselves in a in a reflection and or seeing other people and getting feedback. So we are not as a profession very amenable to it and we care so deeply that we're attached even more closely. So the system, the profession, how we care so deeply, it's like a perfect storm for not wanting people to give you uh, realistic feedback because we don't know how to manage it. And I think it's doing the profession a disservice. Yeah. I mean, I you made me think a little bit about the doctor situation. Right. You know, if, if you have a doctor who's trying to improve and get better and there's this new practice that comes along right. that's going to improve saving lives, they're going to do it. Like, Whatever I was doing before, that's old news now. I have this new practice and I have to get better because it literally is life or death. And right. we don't treat we don't treat classrooms and learning that way. No. Granted, there are some educators that do, and they're always trying to improve and there are leaders that constantly push the, you know, push the envelope with that. But like you said, for the majority of our profession, it's there is it's, no real feedback. And I I so um I so know the 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 pain or the um the anxiety 
of receiving feedback. Somebody came up to me and I want to thank her. It was a a woman from the state of Massachusetts who came up to me at a national keynote that I gave and said, you know, I just want to give you some feedback on something you said. And it, it just didn't sit right with me. And I don't know if other people felt it, but I did. And I wanted you to be aware of that. And can I talk to you about this? And it was so rare that that happened. And I'm modeling how to receive feedback. So how do I put my arms down? And how do I try to have a stance of openness? How do I listen and paraphrase, even though it stings? How do I ask for a next step? Or do you think if I had done it this way, or do you want me to eliminate it totally? And and we had a collaborative conversation. And and the more that I do it, the easier it becomes. But boy, oh boy, it, I'm writing about it. I've been writing for 13 years about <laughs> communication. If I wasn't apprenticed in it and then done this work, I would be like, what are you telling me? You know, and so um, it is, we have to work on this. We have to work yeah. on this. It's just not going to change. Yeah. It's, I, my ego is still, is still there. I, yeah. I didn't become Buddha, you know, I'm, I'm still attached. I'm still working on trying to be a Buddhist, you know, but attachment to wh- who I think I am, not a good, not a good recipe. <laughs> yeah. For- You're bringing up, it's a really, it's a really deep understanding of how we are as humans. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's, it takes a lot of self-awareness to simultaneously Accept that it's okay to be nervous and that it's okay to have anxiety about getting feedback, but it's also okay to receive it. Mm-hmm. And But what it's not okay is for us to start playing the blame game or to completely block it out of our lives. And that's where my next question would be is what happens when you're in the middle of that hard conversation and you have someone that, oh, it's it's always something else that's going on. It's never mm-hmm. the individual's you know responsibility. You know, and I'm thinking more of in the ed leadership role, if you're a principal and AP or whatever, how do you start helping others feel more accountable towards the feedback you're trying to give them? Mm-hmm. I think first off model, model receiving feedback. So if you're a, if you're a leader, receive feedback, you can ask for it to come to you as a concern, not a complaint. I think that's a fair thing to say. You can ask for it to come to you uh, in human and in as a humane and growth producing way as somebody can share it with you, but model receiving it. That's the first thing. If you are delivering it and somebody says, um, but, but it's the kids, but it's the, but, but, but. Um, there is a piece in the book I wrote called Stretching Your Learning Edges Growing Up at Work. Um, where I adapted something from a book called Conversation Transformation, where even if you're getting, yeah, butts, butts back at you, there are ways to hear that, hear that, and ask people to still take a look at it. So they might go, but it's the, the teachers and you're not, but it's the kids and it's the parents. Blah, blah, blah. And you could say, I understand and I also understand. And given that we hope that we are also a part of the solution, what might you do next, right? Mm. So you don't let people off the hook, but you acknowledge all the defensiveness. And and I think that there are ways to also um, 
give feedback in ways that people can listen to it. So if we're too global with our feedback, people get even more anxious and they don't know how to make it better. Mm. So one of the things that I talk to administrators about is if you want people to move forward with an initiative you've got, Give me an initiative at the school that you're that you're working on. Uh, we're you? working on professional learning communities, PLCs. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. So I am not opposed to professional learning communities. I like professional learning communities. And does everybody know what it means to be a professional, what it means to be a learner, and what it means to be in community? And so if for you to actually say to somebody, I don't see that you're really a team player in the PLC, that is too vague. Mm -hmm. And I know it feels strange and possibly patronizing and possibly condescending to have at the ready a few key behaviors that the person could try. Because when they say, well, what exactly do you mean by that? I actually think you need to say to the person, I know, I know this is a really challenging thing to do, but not interrupting people might be one of the things that could help or not saying, well, that's dumb. <laughs> or, <laughs> or if you are usually an extrovert, maybe being the third person to speak. Mm. Those are things that you could do. And then the person might say, all right. You know what I mean? Because they can see that might be something they didn't do as opposed to, Hunter, got to be a team player, man. I don't see it. That's yeah. too fuzzy and too accusatory and too personal. And that might not be true. Mm -hmm. You might really want to be a team player, but three behaviors that you are lacking in executing have come to this person's attention and they haven't directly said that. So there are a lot of things that ed leaders can do. Explicitness, mm -hmm. clarity, um, before accountability, really spelling that stuff out and actually modeling it. So those are just a couple of things that they can do. Yeah, I was going to ask about the explicitness next because oftentimes I, I just wish we would just say what we need to say and not in like an accusatory aggressive way at all, but just a, hey, this is matter of fact. <laughs> what are we doing? We just wasted 15 minutes here in this meeting talking about God knows what. And then now what are we doing? We're wasting everyone's time. And it's not it's not to be mean or rude or aggressive in any way. It's well, simply like setting a standard like you said, modeling as well, um, but, but also teaching people what you expect and what you what you hope for and, and to value their time. Yeah. And I think that that Brene Brown would say this, and I, I don't know Brene, but she always says clear is kind. I say clarity before accountability, clarity before accountability. We have a ton of initiatives, tons of words, engagement, rigor, um, 21st century learning, um, social emotional learning. I'm there. None of these things are wrong. PLCs aren't wrong. None of it's, none of it's wrong as like a, a move forward goal. We're trying to increase or decrease or do this or that PBL or whatever it mm -hmm. is. And I can throw out a bunch of acronyms and none of them are wrong. I just don't know exactly what it looks like and sounds like. And I have a lot of ed leaders I work with who worry, I don't really want to be that explicit. Or if they just knew how to do their job, they would need me to be explicit. Mm -hmm. And I always say, clarity before accountability. Do you want to be right or effective? You might think that adults should know better, 
but they but they really do want people don't wake up and want to be a jerk. They don't wake up and want to be a failure. They don't wake up. Everybody wants to feel competent and productive and purposeful. And I think clarity is a huge piece for people. The need for certainty, mm. which nobody had during COVID. Somebody mm. said like last week, I threw that need away. Um, I think we need as much as we can to be articulate about what our bottom line is. And I know that it might not be for big picture ed leaders, educational leaders, their go-to, but it's exactly what teachers are doing every day. We expect them to be clear about what they're going to assess kids on. We expect them to be uh, clear about their classroom management. We expect them to be able to articulate certain things. We need to do that as well. So I think clarity before accountability is something we need to think about more. And yet, if I had written a book called Clarity Before Accountability, instead of having hard conversations, people would have been like, I don't get it. And yet, it is the precursor to having a hard conversation in a humane way. You were already clear, and now you're holding people accountable to a standard you've articulated. See, and- you, it, it sounds like you were just teaching my ed leadership, like my most re- recent class, because we were talking about um, like evaluations for teachers, essentially, and how you're holding them accountable. And, and it's this big process, right? But we always go back to, have you as the leader been clear enough about what you expect? And if not, then you can't well, blame them. Correct. You can't blame them. Um, and Todd Whitaker talks about that a lot too. And I've talked to him before of just like, you have to be clear what you expect before you know if they're being, and he uses strong words, but ignorant versus insubordinate, right? Correct. But you, you can't blame someone for being in, like not doing their job if you have not explicitly laid out those expectations. So I'm so yeah. glad that you said that. Because yeah. it really yeah. does come down to the leader. Yeah. And I, I think that that Todd Whitaker and I, Brene Brown and I, anybody, we we are on the same page. You're not going to hear something completely different mm-hmm. between us. And so, hmm, I wonder if there's a pattern there you know, that we need to, to take a look at. Mm-hmm. I was in the midst of doing a workshop today around this book, Stretching Your Learning Edges, and I have some facets in there, some concepts, and I realized at the end of it that I needed... 25 behaviors that that aligned with that main idea and I need in the next edition to be that explicit and it isn't to be diminishing it isn't to be patronizing it isn't that everybody is is that kind of a learner but there are so many people that need to be able to look at a behavior and see I can I can do that I can do that. And therefore I am doing this and it makes everybody feel it frees them up. They, they, if you don't know what you're talking about, it, you start, your heart goes up, you stop breathing. A lack of certainty and understanding causes such a physical shift in somebody when they just don't know what's going on that they can't think in a big way. And so clarity actually will provide people with a bandwidth in their head to be able to engage with you. If they don't know what you're talking about, it causes such physical discomfort that it's it's impossible to actually do what you're saying because there's just physically and mentally, you're just stuck. So- I want to take that like last 
minute of everything you had just said and like shout that out from Mount Everest to all educators like in the world. Because uh, we have such difficult jobs already. And if we aren't clear about what we want from our people, we're going to keep burning them like from That's both right. ends. And That's then right. we, we wonder why we have this teacher shortage, why people are burning out. But we have to take accountability over being clear about those expectations and, and truly meeting people where they are and not just doing it lip service, but actually actually doing that. Yeah. Meeting people where they are is a um, is what we hope teachers are doing for students. And we need to be gracious and be able to dance the tango with some teachers, dance the waltz with some other teachers. And what do they need? If we talk about differentiation, we might need to actually also do more of that. And I know, what are you kidding? I have 300 teachers and I have the staff and blah, blah, blah. And it's, it's, a, it's a stretch edge. Let's just consider it being a stretch edge for us to do a little bit more of it. Mm -hmm. Jennifer, I've got one more question for you. Uh, I always I love ending each episode with this question. So say we have a complete revision of schools across the world and we decide to build this brand new education system from scratch and they interview educators from across the world to help shape it. And they select you, Jennifer Abrams, to offer some guidance, Fantastic. Um, but they only allow you three statements. So what would those three statements be for this brand new school system? Anything? Uh, adult development is as important as child development. Um, the development of students' hearts and spirits is as important as their mind. And, uh, to be to to teach global interconnectedness is an essential piece of education right there jennifer abrams i love it so much uh jennifer how can listeners connect with you how can they support you and all the awesome things yeah. that you're doing I have a website, jenniferabrams.com. You can find me at jennifer at jenniferabrams.com. You can find me on Twitter at this moment, uh, <laughs> at Jennifer For Abrams. Now. Fingers yeah. crossed. Fingers crossed. I haven't been on Insta, but I'm at Jennifer Beth Abrams on Insta. I haven't been on there for a while. But the website, jenniferabrams.com, is the, is the way to start. Awesome. Jennifer, it's been an absolute honor and pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Hunter. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Ed Essentials Podcast. Original music by Patrick Cunningham. Links for any relevant information related to this episode can be found in the show notes. If you like what you heard and you're loving these episodes, it would really help if you left a review. It would mean the world to me. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Ed Essentials Podcast.
Podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at teachbetter.com slash podcasts, and we'll see you at the next episode.